Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Picking up in our series, The Songs of Jesus, in which we've been plugging in Jesus' playlist of the Psalms that both shape Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. And in doing so, we've found that these Psalms are all about God's promised King. And importantly, that the fulfillment of that promise rested not on David, the one the promise was made to, but on God, the one the promise was made by. And that no matter how far David was forced to run, we saw last week, no matter how far David fell, that God would remain faithful. That's what we've seen through book one of the Psalms and all the way into book two, which draws to an end with David in his old age, continuing to put his faith in God's faithfulness to fulfill God's promise. That's what you read if you go back and read especially Psalm 71, David in his old age still putting his faith in God. Well, we're going to be looking today, though, at Psalm 72, the psalm that actually closes out book two. And in many ways, is David's reflection on that promise and the hopes that it grew in him, particularly for his son, Solomon. So turn with me there. If you have a Bible, And follow along with me as I read again from Psalm 72, verses 1 to 20. This is God's word. It says this, of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. 
May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on top the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we dive into this psalm, the last in this collection of David's psalms, I pray with David we would see the hope in David's greater son. I pray we would see the universal rule without end and forevermore of David's greater son. And I pray, seeing it, we would submit ourselves to it and become a part of it, expanding it as far as you give us the ability until you do it for good, which we pray you would and quickly In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, it's difficult to overstate the expectations of a father for his son, isn't it? With a daughter, a father is more thinking about his role as a shield or a shelter, as a safeguard, or polishing up the shotgun. to to take out the first guy who comes to take her away. But with a son, it's a little different. And it's very difficult to overstate the expectations of a father for his son. I'm thinking about that even now as we're waiting for our baby to arrive, not knowing about whether this is going to be someone to polish up the shotgun for or whether this is going to be another boy for which I will have perhaps as many expectations as I had for Emmett. I remember that when, when Emmett was on the way, the long list of things that I wanted to do with him and do for him, to train him in and teach him because I had high expectations. They were through the roof. Not that I, w- I wanted him as some others may in life, wanted him to be some sports star or some celebrity. But really, my heart of hearts, the one desire driving it all was that I wanted my son to be better than me. I wanted my son to do better than I did, to succeed where I had failed, to go further than I had gone, to be more faithful and faith-filled in his journey with God. One way or another, it is difficult to overstate the expectations a father has, this father had, for his son. 
And yet, my expectations for my son pale in comparison to the expectations David had for his. You know, before each of our kids arrived, when, when each of our kids was born, I, I took some time in the hospital to, to pause and, and think through and write them a letter. And many of you may have done the same. To, to, for this letter, for the ones that, that I wrote our kids, it was, it was to explain the name that we chose for them and why we chose it and, and the hopes and the expectations that went with it. Well, Psalm 72, as best as we can tell, the, the, letter, the, the letter, it's the letter that David wrote for Solomon to be read out, I think, and read over, intended to be sung over Solomon. And it's all about David's expectations that Solomon would one day rule over all and rule for all time. And that's amazing, right? I never put that in a letter for Emmett. But this is David's expectations for Solomon. That Solomon would rule over all and rule for all time. Which is what we're going to be looking at today. These two expectations. But before getting to the first, notice that both are grounded in an initial plea that David makes in verses 1 and 2. Just look at this for a minute. This plea that God would give to Solomon as God's king, God's justice and righteousness. See it there? In order that Solomon would carry out God's righteousness and justice in his rule of God's people. So these expectations are built in this understanding that God's people depend on God's king to filter through God's righteousness and justice. There is a, there is a system here that David didn't put in place, but he understood. And when we look at these two expectations, I want you to keep this in mind. And it's just why I don't have these expectations for Emmett. Because God's king became, was to be, was intended to be the conduit through whom God's righteousness and justice flowed. But David's first expectation that Solomon would rule over all is grounded in something more specific. And this is the point. Not just that Solomon would carry out God's justice and righteousness. That's the system. But that in doing so, look at verse 3. That in doing so, the mountains would bear prosperity for the people, he says. And the hills bear prosperity, the verb's implied again, in that righteousness. Through that righteousness, by that righteousness. And the key word here is that word, prosperity. You're one of those people who write in your Bible, this would be a good word to, to circle. That word prosperity. Because for God's people, this is the point of having God's king over them. 
This is the point, that through God's king, carrying out God's justice and righteousness, God's people would experience God's prosperity. I know that word doesn't sit well with some of us, but that's what he says, God's prosperity. And this word prosperity actually shows up again in verse 7, where at least in my Bible, it's translated as peace. You see it there? That in the days of Solomon, David prays, the righteous, those made righteous or invited into righteousness through Solomon, that the righteous would flourish and peace, there's that word, abound till the moon be no more. Again, circle that because this concept of of peace and prosperity was again for God's people the point of God's king. He was meant to be an agent of peace, an agent of prosperity, not just in the sense of preserving the absence of conflict, as we would often use the word peace today, but in the sense of securing the presence of something better in its place, prosperity. See, we talk about peace in negative terms, right? about peace times or peace treaties when there is no war. Or of making peace, or we talk about keeping the peace when your kids are at each other's throats. But in the Bible, it's so often about so much more. The Hebrew word behind this, both peace and prosperity, is the word shalom which became, and still is today, the standard greeting between Jews. If you go to a synagogue, this is how you will be met. Shabbat shalom, or on the street, shalom. May you have peace, prosperity. And any Bible dictionary will tell you that this word is used to describe, on top of the absence of conflict, a sense of being whole or complete of mending what's broken or having restored something that was lost. Whether that's as an individual or as a society, when all the the complex relationships of life are once again as they were supposed to be. This was the point of God's king, to bring God's peace to God's people. But I want to just ask for a minute. Tell me, when's the last time that you would have described your life in that way? I don't mean a part of your life. I don't mean things are going well in some sector of your life. But as whole and complete, the entirety of life as it should be. Even if you share a roof with someone who shares your faith and shares your values, this is often a far cry from our own experience. Because I wonder if I had shown up at your house even this morning, if that's the picture I would have gotten. I wasn't home for much of the morning. 
I wonder if that would have been the picture that you would have had if you showed up at our place had I been home. Or would it have been the scene that it often is, right? The, the kids flying off the walls and, and, and the kids are crying and then the mom is crying and then the dad is crying. And this is the reality we know. Or at least we taste more often than we should, right? And that's just us as individuals. Maybe given, maybe we've got better than that as individuals. Thank God for his work, right? But what about society as a whole? What about our society? This is why the Western world has so thoroughly bought into the idea of democracy, the idea of a republic, all the way back to Rome itself, because this notion of peace and prosperity is so foreign to us. And because, because when one man has taken for himself or been granted by others the power to rule, history has proven the point that peace and prosperity are so often not where we end up. And never where we stay. Never where we've stayed. So we settle for presidents, for prime ministers, held in check by parliaments or the people generally because we cannot trust anyone. We cannot, we have not seen anyone do the job that we would hope they would do. Not because we wouldn't like to see the, the crowning of Plato's philosopher king. Even he in the Republic looked forward to something of that nature but because of all those who've risen to power, we haven't seen a king like that yet. And don't make the mistake of thinking that we're any better here in the good old U.S. of A. We're holding on. We've maybe tasted this more than other nations. But beneath the appearance of peace, the appearance of prosperity, we're now what? $22 trillion in debt? And then we continue to see the regular basis, on a regular basis, the relational divides that underlie our society bubbling up in every sphere, whether that's ethnically, re relationally, societally, whether, it, whether it's nationalistically. It doesn't matter what it is. They're all over the place. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way that anybody could hope it to be. And yet this is David's expectation for his son Solomon. David did all right. But David knew what it was like to fall short. And yet this is David's expectation for his son Solomon, that he would live up to his name, Salamna, the man of peace, the man of shalom. And then notice the emphasis in these verses, that it's for who? For the poor, verse 4. And then for the children of the needy among whom, interestingly enough, according to the psalm that precedes this in Psalm 71, David counted himself. 
praying that his son would do for his people and for himself what he couldn't do, what what we can't do for ourselves. Which is why David then prays in verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And finally in verse 11, may all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Because David knows that the only hope of God's people knowing God's peace and God's prosperity is if they know it in God's promised king. With the expectation that he would one day first rule over all. High expectations. But not just that he would someday rule over all. Also, second, with the expectation that he would someday rule for all time. Because David's expectation for his son Solomon is that he was going to be the one in verse 12 who delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. The king's the one who delivers them. The derelict and the destitute, the disregarded and the disadvantaged, the, the needy and the neglected, the poor and the oppressed, the undeserved and the underserved, those abandoned and those afflicted, those who are written off. But while they're written off by the world, they're going to be the king's concern. Isn't that an amazing picture? We very easily turn our noses from those who we functionally at least think, do not deserve our attention. And yet those are the ones who are going to be the king's concern, not to use them for his own ends, but because he's going to build his kingdom, not because he's going to build his kingdom on their backs, but because he's the one who's going to deliver them. Like when God came down and and delivered his people out of the hands of the Egyptians. That's the picture here. That the king will do what God once did on behalf of God for those who need it most and cannot do it for themselves. More so in verse 13, David says, it's because the king has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. He has pity or compassion, which, which means the king is moved in the, the pit of his stomach to save them. Not in some detached sense as if the king is meant to, to sit on his throne and throw them a bone, but because he's overwhelmed with their plight and bears on his shoulders the weight of their predicament. See, David's not looking for some Prince John who will tax the poor to line his own pockets. He's looking for a king like Richard who who will go go off, fight on their behalf, and then return, come back to banish all other burdens on their behalf. Yeah, how often do we get stuck with Prince John? 
But David's looking forward to something better. He envisions a king who delivers and saves. And then also, a king who redeems. Verse 14, from oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight, he says. A a king who redeems. He buys them back at great cost to himself. He takes on the debt so that they can take on his freedom. Not because their lives are inherently more valuable than his own. They're not. But because in his eyes, he values them. This is the kind of king David hopes his son will be. The first in the fight, the last in the retreat. Which is why he then prays, verse 15, long may he live. Rule for all time, right? And may the gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him when? Continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. Why? Because David's prayer is that in him the people would be blessed, he says, and that it would be him who all nations would call blessed. And that God would do it. The close of this book, that God would do it. Because God alone, verse 18, is the one who does such wondrous things so that God alone might get the glory. High expectations. And so it says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. With this prayer, with this prayer, the last thing to ring out in his old age, that Solomon, his son, would rule over all and rule for all time. And we ought to remember that David wasn't just making this stuff up either. He wasn't just shooting from the hip some, some Hail Mary, but was praying based on the promise of God. That David's son was going to be greater than David. Do you remember the promise? It's made back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David had just brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means, the city of peace. But he was troubled that while he was living in a house of cedar, God's Ark, God's throne was still sitting in a tent. And so he decided in his heart that he was going to build God a house. But was soon told that he would not do such a thing. Elsewhere we find it's because David was a man of war, not a man of peace. 
And so he would not be the one to bring peace to God's people. And yet, while telling David that David would not be allowed to build God's house, at the same time, God promised to build David's house. And this is the promise. Here's what it says back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. It says this, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I shall establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so David prayed. Seeing his own failure, knowing he he fell short himself, prayed that may it be so with Solomon, ruling over all and ruling for all time. High expectations indeed. The only problem was Solomon couldn't ultimately fulfill the expectations, didn't ultimately fulfill the expectations. And we know from elsewhere that the expectations were therefore looking beyond Solomon to someone else. The promises of God are always conditional, just as much as they are always unconditional. And Solomon failed, but the promises of God weren't undone and looked forward to someone else. Because Solomon wasn't ultimately the son of David God was speaking about. He was speaking about a son a little further down the family tree. Sure, Solomon would build God's house. And through Solomon, the house of David would be built up. But in the end, Solomon wouldn't do any better at those things David couldn't do himself. He would fail just as much, if not more. Sure, he'd establish peace in a sense, but only in the negative sense, securing the absence of war. Not in the positive sense of preserving the presence of something better. And beyond that, he'd end up relating to the people more like a Prince John than a Richard or a Robin Hood. It's an interesting life to read of the man who kept the peace while enslaving the people is the way the story goes. Building God's house on the backs of God's people 
It's an interesting story to read that only turns around in the very end if it turned around at all. Solomon wasn't the one. And yet this prayer of David, based on the promises of God, would find its fulfillment eventually in Jesus. The Gospel of John says that on both his way to the cross and his rising from the grave, Jesus would say to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace be with you. Such that someone like the Apostle Paul could then say afterwards that he is our peace. Restoring what needs to be restored most. Doing for the needy what we need the most, but we cannot do for ourselves. Restoring the one relationship that matters so that all other relationships have a chance of being what they can. That having restored our relationship with the Father, that's what the cross does, right? First and foremost, with Jesus dying on our behalf, it restores our relationship with the Father. Jesus has likewise made it possible for our relationships to be restored elsewhere. Such that what David prayed for Solomon, God secured in Holy Scripture that the expectations David had for Solomon, that he would one day rule over all and rule for all time, might as high as they were find their fulfillment in David's greater son. Because even more than David, the expectations of the father for his son are not easily overstated. With that, let me encourage you then as we leave and go about our weeks in three ways. Let me encourage you to seek, to keep, and to spread the peace. First, to seek the peace and to seek it in Jesus. You know, when life gets flipped upside down or turned inside out, that's when we have a tendency most to seek it everywhere else. But the fact of the matter is that Jesus remains the only one in the boat who can stand up and reprimand the waves and command them, peace be still. And then to whom they listen. He's the only one who can deliver the needy, save the needy, and rescue and redeem the needy from what we need rescue from the most. It's like C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So seek the peace but seek it, continue to seek it, seek it always in Jesus. Second, keep the peace. Because if Jesus died to break down the dividing walls of hostility among us, what does it say about us if we live all of our days, spend all of our days building them up again? 
It was Lewis's father in the faith, George MacDonald, who said that division has done more to hide Christ from the view of men than all the infidelity that has ever been spoken. So as those who have put our faith in God's faithful Son, and I'd especially speak to those like Anna and Marty, are committing themselves to this body that we ought to be, I pray we would be, I ask God that he would allow me as a part of that to be keepers of the peace. And then beyond this body that we would be keepers of the peace among all who claim Christ as king. Seek the peace. Keep the peace. And then third, let me encourage you to spread the peace. To devote yourself under Christ to being an agent of peace as well. This is our privilege. This is our duty under the Prince of Peace. By both finding our peace in Jesus, inviting others into that as well, and then by living in this world as citizens of another. There's a historian, Rodney Stark, who has documented in a number of places the rise of Christianity. And one of the books I was reading most recently, he's talking particularly about Christianity's relationship to slavery. And he says a pretty startling thing. He says in this book, in fact, all known societies above the very primitive level have been slave societies. Even many of the Northwest American Indian tribes had slaves long before Columbus's voyage. Yet, amid this universal slavery, only one civilization has ever rejected human bondage. Christendom. And it did it twice both in the ancient world and then again in the 17 and 1800s. That only one civilization has ever rejected human bondage, Christendom. And it's a part, it was lived out, that happened because Christians were living in this world as citizens of another. Not being content just to be citizens of another. But taking that citizenship seriously enough to change what they did here and to bring the peace. And I'd encourage you even this week, whether that is considering adopting the fatherless, caring for the widowed and the orphan, defending the defenseless, finding a way to feed the hungry, to participate in our community. We ought to be the frontliners. To fight for the kingdom coming. Not because you and I are going to do it, but because we're anticipating it being done. So I'd encourage you even this week to spend your week thinking this week about whether and how you can do precisely that. Seek the peace in Jesus Keep the peace in Jesus and spread the peace in the power and under the authority of Jesus. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask um, that you would embolden us, empower us to that end. I ask that you would do it, that you would raise up, even in small ways from among our small body, those who will echo the causes of Christians long ago. That we would too in our own day see heroes living out their life in you. Having put their faith in your faithful son being faithful even now. I pray you would do it to the honor and glory of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.